How many of you are having a good time so far? Just give me a little wave. How many of you got hurt on the rapids yesterday? Give me a wave. Ooh, look at that. There's a lot of bruises in this room. I hope no one pulled anyone's shorts down or anything in the pool yesterday. I was slightly afraid for Wayne and Ben that they were going to get the full treatment, but... Guys, great to be together. So, I'm Phil, I'm married to the amazing Carol. Carol, give everyone a wave. There she is. And uh, we uh, come from the great metropolis of Bedford. So, greetings from sunny Bedford. And uh, we, are, we are part of a church called the King's Arms, which I know sounds like a pub, but there's actually three pubs in our town called the King's Arms, and occasionally people turn up to the wrong venue, but we don't mind that. In fact, once we had these really beautiful signs made saying, welcome to the King's Arms, and we put them outside the church meeting for the first time, and by the time we came out, someone had stolen them. We never found out who, but we've got our suspicions. Because every time you go into the King's Arms pub, they've got these brilliant signs. So, welcome from our church to yours, and it's just uh, really, really brilliant to be here. And we are going to just share a few thoughts together. And I don't know whether you believe this, but I really do believe that the greatest days of the church are yet to come. And that there is a, there is a certain narrative that's being told if you switch on your media or your websites from the news stations in our nation, which really at the minute would be characterized by anxiety, uncertainty, panic, how are things going to turn out. Suddenly we have some world leaders that are a little more unpredictable than they used to be. I don't know if you noticed that. And there is this kind of prevailing mood of uncertainty, but there is a different narrative being told in the heavenly places. And the narrative is one of God's complete confidence about how the end of the ages is going to work out. God is not anxious about the future. He is supremely confident. Scripture says that he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He already knows how the story is going to play out. Scripture says that he is working all things together for good in conformity with the purpose of his will, which means that you should be the most confident people on planet Earth right now. There is a narrative from heaven that we should be getting our marching orders from, and it's from Jesus, the king who's already sat down. The victory is won. We pray from victory, not just for victory. And this makes a huge difference to the kind of people that we are in the world. The greatest days are still to come. And you, you may be experiencing this in your own home church, in your own kind of neighborhoods and the work that you're involved in, but I have never known days like the days we're living in, in terms of the advance of the gospel and the spread of the kingdom. Uh, let me just read you just three quick stories that have come through in the last few months in, in our own setting. This first one is from a lady who leads our children's work in our church, and she was leading a time of teaching our eight to ten-year-olds how to hear Jesus and to prophesy. And to do that, they had these series of kind of picture cards, and the idea was you prayed, you asked God to draw your attention to a card, and then you used it to help prophesy over someone. And this is the story that she sent me literally last week. She said, one girl called Jessica picked up a card with a picture of the headphones on. She wrote down a word for a person, 
And then she came to show me, so I asked her who she thought it was for, and she pointed to a man whose name is David. So we went and prayed for him. He had hearing aids in both ears. We prayed for him three to four times. So today, he came to me to say that he was referred after that to a different doctor who sent him for another hearing test. At this hearing test, they tested him five times because his previous hearing was recorded as minus 30, but was now perfect. The doctor couldn't work it out. The doctor couldn't work it out, and he now no longer needs hearing aids. And he wanted Jessica to be the first one to hear this news. How exciting is that? Isn't that remarkable? But that's what happens when the king's kingdom shows up. That's normal Christianity. Let me read you another one. Here's another lady who wrote to us recently. She said, I live in Dubai, and I came to visit England over the summer and came to one of your services. I had just had a miscarriage and had been diagnosed with a bicornate womb, which means two womb cavities much smaller and harder for a baby to grow full term in. I came to both your morning services, and I listened to a sermon about Jesus. It was powerful. Someone arranged for a lovely lady who is a nurse to come and pray with me between the services, and I began to tell her about the grief that I felt. She simply invited Jesus in to heal my heart and if I had any questions for him. So I asked him to show me my baby now. In a beautiful picture, Jesus showed me where I had buried my baby that summer, and the resurrected little body fully grown now, healthy in his arms. It brought me deep peace in a place of great sorrow. I asked the lady to pray for my womb, but I didn't go into any details with her. She prayed, and I felt like jumping beans were going on in my womb. For the next two weeks before my next scan checkup, I continued to declare the healing as I'd felt it. And by the time I had my scan, my womb was no longer by cornet, but just had a slight arch at the top. Two weeks later in Dubai, I had another scan, and there was no longer even an arch. God had completely reshaped my womb. <laughs> Hallelujah. Isn't that cool? Here's another one, in case you're not convinced yet. Last week, a mother was telling me about her middle son, who'd had a scan on his kidneys. One was shriveling and scarred and needed a further scan, to see if it was now affecting his other good kidney. So last Wednesday, this boy came to discipleship group and the other boys prayed for him. And then on the Thursday, he had a whole day being scanned. He was booked into Great Ormond Street in a couple of weeks. But I received this from his mother yesterday afternoon. She said, so we're just back from the hospital. Scan result for Tommy shows that his kidneys are the same size now and there is no evidence even of scarring. The doctor couldn't explain it other than perhaps this scan was a bit more detailed. But I saw the first scan with my own eyes and it was like comparing a grape and a grapefruit. Healing question mark, I'll take it. Thanks for praying. <laughs> Thanks for praying. I love that. We, we serve a miracle working God. And when you're working with young people, it's in, extremely important that you believe that. Because working with young people is exhilarating and amazing and a privilege, but it's certainly not a walk in the park. 
It is one of the most challenging things that you can give your life to because you are going to come face to face with pain, face to face with obstacles, face to face with opposition, both humanly speaking, resource speaking, but even the enemy. He opposes anyone who sets their sights on raising a new generation that loves Jesus. It's exciting, but it's challenging. You need to believe in a God of the miraculous. You know, some of my greatest highlights through the years have been working with young people and just seeing what God has done in their lives. I'm just remarkable things. You know, I remember one young guy when I used to be a youth worker in Newcastle. Uh, he phoned me one day and he said, Phil, he said, I, I realized I'm not a Christian. And I, I kind of, I want to I know. I, I'm an atheist actually, but I want to know. I want to explore it. And he said, can you help me? And I said, okay, I'll come round. And so for 10 weeks... I would go around to his house in the evening, and we would do kind of apologetics together. We'd open the Bible, we'd talk about Jesus, we'd, I'd try and answer his questions and objections. I mean, I literally, I, I shot all my best bullets in his direction. I, you know, my best arguments, my best knowledge, and none of it got through. And every single week, he seemed more entrenched than the last. And I'm like, Jesus, I just, I don't know how to get through to this guy. And eventually, more out of desperation than faith, I thought, I know, I'm going to show him a video that I've got about a guy who died and God raised him from the dead. I'm just going to try that. I've tried everything else. I'm now going to try this. And so the next Wednesday night, I brought Matt around to my house. We sat him in our living room. I'm like, right, we're going to watch this video and then I'd like to know what you think. And so we watched this video of this just, you know, out of this world experience of this guy who died and God raised him to life on the operating theater table. And at the end, I looked at my friend Matt and I was like, well, what did you think of that? He's like, that was pretty amazing. I was like, would you like to know Jesus? He's like, yeah, I would. <laughs> I was like, yes. Yes. And we led him to Christ in our living room. I dropped him off home. I, mean, I remember on the way home, my, my window was down. My fist was out that window. I'm like, yes, Jesus. You know, when I look back now, I'm like, that was one of the best moments of my life. You know, seeing Jesus move in that young guy's heart. And you know, when I, I think back through the years of young people, I've had the privilege of discipling, who are now architects and doctors and pastors and engineers. And, you know, they're walking with God, they're fathers, they're, 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 they're leading homes. I'm like, God, that is a privilege. That, that is the sweet of youth work, isn't it? And all of you have your own stories. Those people, those individuals in your life where you've just seen the grace of God show up. And aren't they the best moments? Isn't that why you're doing what you're doing? You believe in a miraculous God. But there's also incredible challenges. And I remember uh, one night, about midnight, our phone went in our house. And it was another young person who was calling us to say, my friend has just come around to my house and she said she's going to drive down to sell herself into the pornography industry to feed her drug habit can you please come around and help? Can you come and talk her out of it? And so I remember we jumped in our car and we drove around where this girl was who was known to us and 
She, unbeknownst to us, had this kind of secret drug habit that got so desperate, so uh, intoxicating and addictive in our life that she was literally willing to do anything to feed it. She was just desperate, desperate. And I remember we went round. We, we eventually persuaded her to come and move into our home. So she jumped in our car that night. We kind of rescued her from that immediate threat. She came and lived with us for several weeks. And it was only a few weeks in that we, as we began to chat to her, she said, yeah, she said, one of my great fascinations is how to commit the perfect murder. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> we had two small children at the time. <laughs> and uh, she was up in her bedroom <laughs> addicted to drugs, desperate, mentally ill, struggling with all sorts of stuff and trying to plot the perfect murder. How many of you know those moments are challenging? <laughs> you need to believe in a miraculous God. Yeah, I remember sitting around the hospital bed of another friend of ours who had got pregnant because a young guy who was in the army came through our youth group pretending to love Jesus, but actually secretly he was wanting to sleep with all the girls in our youth group. That was challenging. And in the end, she got pregnant. And remember standing around a hospital bed because all the doctors were trying to persuade her to have an abortion. And in the world's eyes, that really looked like perceived wisdom for her. Because she was vulnerable. She came from a broken home. She had literally no resources to her name. And so they were trying to persuade her to go in that direction. And I tell you, aren't those moments some of the most challenging moments in life? When you're looking in the whites of someone's eyes and you know what it means if you try and persuade this person to go through the pregnancy. That is not an easy call. But I remember as we talked to her, she made the incredibly courageous decision to go through the pregnancy. And she told the doctors, no, I'm going to go through but then she gave birth to this baby incredibly prematurely. I think it was 24 weeks, 27 weeks. And this, this little baby boy, literally, I mean, he was like tiny. I mean, like, you know, not much bigger than my hand. And didn't know if he was going to live. And in an incubator for, for weeks, for months, eventually she takes him home, this little boy. She loved him, but in the end she couldn't look after him. She had to put him up for adoption. How many of you know those moments is where you need to believe in a miraculous working God who can work all things together for good, that he can redeem any situation. And I remember once walking through a Newcastle council estate and being attacked by a bunch of young people who were high and out of their mind. One of them was Cheryl Cole's brother. <laughs> it's one of my minor claims to fame. <laughs> I was beaten up by Cheryl Cole's brother on a Newcastle council estate. And, you know, I remember for several years after that, the last thing I wanted to do was work with young people because, to be honest, they scared me. Because every time I thought about young people, I thought about these lads who really were just desperate, but it came out in violence. Those are difficult moments. Again, I remember turning up to Newcastle and a band had just arrived with a whole load of gear. They actually came from Brighton. And they turned up with all this kind of high-tech, cool gear in their van, and we were unloading it into this building, and again, it was in a council estate, very, very rough area, kind of graffiti, literally there was a burnt out car next to the church building, it felt like Beirut, and, uh, 
And, and as these guys are kind of loading their guitars and their amps into this church building, suddenly a crowd of teenagers and young people start to gather around the building because they're, they're sniffing a, a score. You know, there's, there's, there's money to be had in this gear. And so we load this stuff into the building. And then for some unknown reason, the rest of the team leaves the building but leaves two of us in charge to look after the stuff. And I am one of them. I'm 18 years old at the time. I'm standing inside this building. And while we're inside, about 20 to 30 youths are gathered around the outside of the building trying to smash the door down. (laughs) And eventually, one of them starts to pull out a knife. They start throwing this knife at the door. They start getting metal bars to try and bash off the door handles. And I am inside wetting myself. You know, I, I, you know, I try and find something. I find like an iron pole myself just in case. I've no idea what I would have done if they come through the doors. But, you know, we need to believe in a miraculous working God. Working with young people is not a walk in a park. But I tell you, it's one of the most thrilling, exhilarating, high callings that you can give your life to. And that is exactly why you're in this room tonight. And I, I want to talk to you really this morning about understanding the times and the seasons in which you live. Because if you don't understand the season in which you live, you cannot build correctly. Some of us are still building according to yesterday's season when actually spiritually God has moved things on. I remember the first time that I visited New Zealand. It was in February and it was freezing cold in this country. And so half of my bag that I packed was full of thermal clothes. I mean, I kid you not, I had like a thermal long sleeve top. I think I even packed long johns. I packed my hot water bottle. Because in my head, I thought, I know it's summer in New Zealand, but in England, it's freezing. It's snowing outside. And of course, when I got to New Zealand, it was baking, and I lived in shorts and a T-shirt for the whole fortnight. I had packed for the wrong season. I packed the wrong stuff for my journey because I didn't understand the time in which I was living. And this is what Jesus says to the religious people of his day, Matthew 16, 2. He says, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is overcast. How is it that you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times? The word there, the Greek word that's used for time is kairos, not chronos. There are two Greek words for time. Chronos means the linear passing of time, but that is not what Jesus is talking about. He says, how is it that you cannot tell the signs of the times? Kairos, which means the opportune moment of God's favor now. How is it I am standing right in front of you and yet you cannot recognize Messiah when he is staring you in the face? You can tell the weather. How is it that you cannot spiritually discern what season you're in? Jesus Jesus puts it a different way when he's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, to what shall I compare this generation? You're like the guys who play a funeral march and then everyone starts dancing. Or you're like the guys that start playing the wedding march and everyone starts mourning. In other words, you are singing the wrong song in the wrong season. You're singing yesterday's song. This is a moment of celebration, and yet you're singing the song of suspicion and persecution towards me. You should be able to tell the signs of the times. 
The question is, are you building according to the right spiritual season and what you're currently doing with your young people? Do you understand the the signs, the times that you are living in? And it's interesting historically that the people who most persecute a new move of God are the people who experienced the last move of God. It's been the same right through the history of revivals. The, the biggest persecutors of a new move of God in a new season are those who walked with God in a different season but have not yet caught up with the new thing that God is doing. Because in our heads we think, well, if God did it this way the last time, surely he'll do it like that again. And that's actually why it's so important what Stu is saying about it's timeless truths but in a timely manner. That's why even great events like New Day, they have to change. Not in their values, but in the way that those things get expressed. Because we have to ask ourselves, what season are we living in? How do we communicate Jesus? How do we get on his wavelength in our generation? And so I want to mention just three season shifts that I think are going on right now. Not just in this nation, but actually across the nations of the world. And these greatly affect the way that we pack our suitcase. You need to make sure you haven't got the long johns in your suitcase. You need to pack your shorts. Make sure you're prepared for what God is actually doing. The first transition is this. God is moving us from an attitude of servitude to one of sonship. He's moving us from an attitude of servitude to sonship. This is an absolutely critical season shift because as Will was saying yesterday, how many of you loved what Will had to share yesterday? I thought it was so fantastic. And uh, you know he was sharing that story about the waterlogged basement. And he said, his comment was this, he said, some of us never deal with the shame in our basement and then we wonder why the rest of our lives still smell of Anglican damp. Do you remember he said that? (laughs) In other words, what was his point? His point was free people, free other people. Free people, free other people. In other words, before a reformation can take place out there in culture, there is first a reformation that we need to get to grips with that's already happened in here because freedom is an inside job. And you always export around you the reality that you're most aware of within you. Who you really are will always come out in what you build and how you behave. Your behavior is determined by your beliefs. The question is, who do you really believe you are? Because if the church in this nation truly believed in their own conversion, (laughs) this planet would get transformed. (laughs) I mean, it really would. If we really believed in our own conversion... (laughs) You can just imagine how different our lives would be, how much more courage, how much less timid, how much less fearful, how much less gripped by insecurity we would be if we really believed Jesus has saved me and freed me and I am now a brand new creation. I tell you, freedom is an inside job. It starts in here. And this is what Jesus said about serving and sonship in Matthew 20, 28. He said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. How many of you know that sonship or daughterhood and serving are both parts of the kingdom? 
And Jesus here says, listen, this is what sons do. They serve. That is just as natural to you as drinking water. Sons and daughters of the living God serve. That's what Jesus did. He's saying, listen, I'm the son of man. I've come to serve. That's what sons do naturally. That's just in your DNA. That's what the son of God is like. That is what you are now like. You're made in his image. You're made to serve. But what happens when you divorce your serving from your sonship is that you create servitude. Did you get that? When you divorce your serving from your sonship, you create servitude. And servitude is the attitude that I have to perform for what God has already given me for free. That was an excellent point, Phil. It's all right, I brought my own encouragement. <laughs> servitude is, is, is the attitude. I've, I've got to perform what, for what God actually in the gospel has given me for free. I mean, just think for a moment about Adam and Eve in the garden. That famous story that we know in Genesis. They are tempted by the enemy. Do you remember the temptation that came to Adam and Eve? If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. That was the carrot on the end of the stick. You know, behind the temptation to grab that fruit was this temptation from the enemy. If you eat this, you'll become like God. The great tragedy of that is that they were already like God. <laughs> Genesis 1.27, in his own image he made them. Male and female he created them. They were already like God. <laughs> the enemy was offering them something that they already had. And yet somehow they trade that and move into a performance cycle where they believe, I have to earn something that God actually has already given me for free. And they sell themselves into servitude. And it's always amazing to me how driven some people can be who believe in the grace of God. And I know because I've been one of those people many times in my life. And I think often we do vertical grace very well. But horizontal grace is more challenging. You know, we can believe, God, you have forgiven me. I'm free. But then somehow in the way it works out in our lives, we can start to serve one another still out of the old orphan-hearted servitude of now I have to work really hard to be approved by God or by other people. And I tell you, that stuff will kill you. There is a better way. There is a world of difference between working from God's affirmation than working for his affirmation. I wonder which camp you would put yourself in. Am I working really hard so that God is pleased with me? Or maybe that other people are pleased with me? Someone once said this, that if you don't live in the fear of man, you know, when they criticize you, it's not going to kill you because <laughs> you're living for someone else's praise. Whose praise are you living for? 
Where does your affirmation come from? Where does your sense of worth and security come from? Because I tell you, sons and daughters who serve from the security of knowing, I am loved by the Father and I have received salvation as a free gift. Those kind of people change the world. They change the world. I was just thinking of one of my friends who was out on the streets, this is probably about a year ago, and he began to chat to a guy on the streets in Bedford, and he was just out wanting to see what Jesus wanted to do, chatting to this guy, this guy had literally built like a house, built like a tank, and he's chatting to this guy in the, in the middle of the street, and my friend just says to him, listen, is there anything that I can pray for? And he's like, oh no, he said, I'm fine. He's like, do you believe in Jesus? No, not really. Had a good conversation, not much more, this guy went off. But then about 45 minutes later, he came back through town and found my friend. And he said, he said, listen, he said, I've just been to the gym and I pulled a muscle in my bicep. And I wondered if I could have that prayer you offered me earlier. <laughs> and so my friend says, yeah, sure. And so he prays for this, this guy and his bicep gets instantly healed. It was just instantly healed on the street. And his guy starts like, what the effing hell is this? Because... <laughs> That's what non-Christians do when they get amazed when God shows up. If non-Christians start to swear when you pray for them, it's a good sign, not a bad one. And so he's like, what is going on? What is this? And so my friend just starts to share Jesus with him. He's like, well, Jesus is alive. He loves you. He knows you. You know, blah, 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 blah. Would you like to know him? Yeah, no thanks. Oh, okay, right. He's like, well, that's all right. He said, listen, why, you know, why don't we exchange numbers? You know, feel free to, free to call me anytime. He's like, I will. And he said, actually, there's something else you could pray for. And this guy said, what? He says, well, I'm actually a drug dealer. And he said, I, I hate dealing drugs. So I deal drugs right across this town, and I hate it. I want to give it up, but I can't. You know, I, I depend on the income. I've got bills to pay. I hate what I'm doing. I just can't break it. Do you think God could do something about that? So my friend said, yeah, he could. So again, he just prays a short prayer in there in the middle of the town, and the guy goes off. And then my friend tries to call this guy for a few weeks in a row and cannot get through. And he just thinks, oh, maybe it was just one of those. Who knows what happened? It was a seed sown. Just got to trust Jesus. And then he was out in the same streets a few weeks later, and this guy, who'd been trying to call for weeks, comes bounding up to him. He's like, I'm so sorry. Have you been trying to call me? I dropped my phone down the toilet. <laughs> And he said, I wanted to call you, but your number was on my phone. I'm so glad I've seen you. He said, you'll never guess what's happened in my life. And he said, since that moment you prayed for me, he said, I've not sold any drugs from that moment. And he said, I just suddenly, I just lost the will to do it. And I just thought, I'm going to break this habit in my life. I'm going to stop doing this. And he said, it's been weeks since I did it. That's never happened in years. And so my, my friend says to him, well, would you like to know Jesus? Yes, please. And so he leads them to Christ right there and then on the streets. Because I tell you, sons who serve out of security and not servitude know who they are. They know what they carry. That they're not phased by a damaged bicep or by a drug dealer who needs breakthrough. They understand, I was born to serve, but out of security and not servitude. It's absolutely critical. Because if you try and reform society out of your own need for significance, you will end up living for the praise of men, not the praise of God. We don't serve because we have a need for significance. You already have that in Christ. You are already significant. You have significance in the eyes 
of the Lord. This is what scripture says. 2 Peter 1.4, you are partakers of the divine nature. I didn't make this up, by the way. This is in the book. You are partakers of the divine nature. I'm not even sure I know what that means. But you are partakers of it, <laughs> of the divine nature. Ephesians 3.19, you have been filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. I'm not sure I know what that means either. But God says it's true of you. You are filled to all the measure. Just think how full God is right now. Scripture says you are filled with that measure. That's why it says Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are bigger on the inside than on the outside. (laughs) You're like Doctor Who's TARDIS on the inside. Open you up. I am a partaker of the divine nature. I am filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. Ephesians 2.6, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. This is who you really are. This is heaven's press, press report about your life. <laughs> the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And what I would love for us to do in our own lives, but also in the lives of the young people that we serve, is to once and for all kill the false gospel of false humility. Where we think it's a virtue to beat ourselves up and call it godly. Where in the world did we get that idea from? And it's, it's, it's a very British trait. You know, it, it is, I realize it's a very peculiarly British thing to mock ourselves. Self-depreciating humor is an art form in Britain. <laughs> you know? The trouble is, those things that we say about ourselves are often not just jokes, they're what we really believe. And I tell you, that false gospel of false humility is killing us. You were born for greatness. You were born for greatness. How do I know that? Because you are a partaker of the divine nature. You're seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are filled all the measure of the fullness of God. You were born ready to rumble and to bring the kingdom in a way which affects things in your generation. You were born for greatness. And as C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. Did you get that? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, thinking, oh, I'm not sure how much I'm going to achieve in my life. You know, can I, can I really bring any fruit? Will my life really have any significance? Listen, banish that gospel of false humility. You have been raised with Christ. And yes, it's all by grace. But now you have a new identity, a new name. You have dignity. You have purpose. You are called an ambassador of the gospel. You are now co-reigning and ruling with Jesus. You will inherit the nations with him. You are no longer the tail. You are the head. You are not an echo. You are a voice. You're not responding to the prevailing mood. You are a herald of prophetic things that God is about to do in this nation. You were born for greatness. And it's time you started to believe that. It's time you started to believe that. 1 John 3 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, for that is what we are. Wow. That is what we are. I might do my other points in a moment, but I just feel like we should just pause. 
Just pray. So why don't you just close your eyes where you are? It's a beautiful sense of God's presence in this room right now. And if you're sitting here thinking, that just sounds too good, good to be true, you know, I'm not sure that is for me. Listen, you're not that special that you get to make an exception from what God says is true about you. <laughs> you're in with the rest of us. You're one of God's special treasures. The beloved of God. The apple of his eye. You measure someone's value by what you're willing to pay for it. How great your value must be if the Father gave his son for you. When you demean yourself, you diminish God. Because he gave everything to have you. (laughs) You cannot curse yourself and worship God at the same time. Even Balaam couldn't curse the people of God. He hated God, but he couldn't curse them because he saw that they were blessed by God. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You are God's special ones. And if you would just recognize that perhaps your serving for him has perhaps been out of servitude, it's been out of maybe duty, maybe out of needing significance, maybe you slipped into just a lack of joy, feeling like you're living for the praise of others rather than the praise of God. I just want you to be brave. Just real quickly stand where you are. And I just want to pray for a moment of fresh revelation for you. Free people, free people. That is why this stuff matters. And if you're anything like me, I'm a bit like Shrek with his onion layers. (laughs) God just keeps peeling them off one layer at a time. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 2 says that the Spirit has been given that we might understand what he has freely given us. And so I pray right now, Holy Spirit, for revelation in this room of what you have freely given us, that we don't have to earn or perform, but it's ours as a gift. Wow, that is amazing. It's a gift. It's a gift. You are highly treasured. You are the beloved of God. Wow. And I just pray for that revelation to come, permeate hearts and minds in this room right, right now. Right across this room. I just pray for freedom. Freedom. Lord, I just shake off the shackles of servitude where we've been operating out of duty rather than delight. I just break, brush that off right now. Say, come, Holy Spirit. If you're near someone who's standing, just, just gently put a hand on them. Just pray for them. I'll be honest, there are some even now, you're sitting and you're scared to stand because... For you, that would be a performance failure. You think, if I, if I stand, then people will think, gosh, he's been faking it. I just want to encourage you, you're in good company. I am standing with you. If you're scared to stand because of your performance issues, this is exactly the moment that you should be standing. So can I just encourage you to stand? If you wish you'd responded first time, but maybe you thought it was too late, just join us. Grace of God is present in this place. Thank you, Father. Well done. 
Well done for your courage. Thank you, Father. Father, we just declare that we will not get stuck in performance-related approval, but we'll stand in the grace of God. Thank you for what we heard from Natalie, from Prince, the mercy, the grace of God. I just pray, come, free them in the name of Jesus. <laughs> free them in the name of Jesus. Just wherever you're standing, just repent of living under a wrong mindset. Just tell him, just say, Father, I'm sorry that I've lived with that attitude of servitude. Thank you that I am your beloved. You love me. You're nuts about me. You value me. I'm yours. You dance over me. You sing songs of delight over my life. You are not measuring my performance. Wow. He is not comparing you with any other living person on this planet. He's not measuring your story with anybody else. It's not Billy Graham on one end of the spectrum on you and the other. That's not the way God thinks. He loves his sons and daughters. And so, God, I just break rejection. I break exclusion. I break lies now in the name of Jesus. I just break the shackles of old orphan thinking. Lord, we want the prodigals to meet the father at the door and not the elder brother. And so, Father, we just repent of any elder brother syndrome left in our system. We say, Father, let us see as you see. Wow. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for the scent of freedom in this room. Wow. Sure, my mother. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Wow. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as his sons in Christ Jesus. And what pleasure he took planning this. <laughs> this is the gospel. It is good news. Thank you, Lord. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Love you, Jesus. But guys, just feel free to carry on marinating. You can stay standing, sitting on the floor, jumping up and down. I really don't mind. The second season shift that God is bringing us into is he's moving us away from an over-reliance on human programs to a reliance on his presence. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me because... I believe that human programs can be just as inspired by the Holy Spirit as any spontaneous moment can. God is the ultimate planner. He's, the, in a sense, the ultimate programmer. His programs are all inspired, they're all anointed, and they're all destined to bring breakthrough. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not polarizing two things, but I think very often, certainly in the West... Our tendency is to rely more on human programs than on the inbreaking of God. What he alone could do. I think it was Billy Graham, the great evangelist, who once said this. He said, 95% of the church's activity would continue merrily even if the presence of the Holy Spirit was taken out of the equation. And he said, we probably wouldn't even notice. Now, if you're Billy Graham, you're allowed to say things like that. <laughs> but that's provocative, isn't it? Ask yourself, would we notice 
if the Holy Spirit's presence was lifted from what we're doing, would we still carry on merrily with our programs? Or would we realize, God, we are sunk unless you show up? Just one of the season shifts that God is bringing us into, a realization that we cannot see the change that we long to see unless he does something. The reason that God sometimes allows you to feel overwhelmed with the scale of need is so that you would tap out of your own self-reliance and into God-dependence. Sometimes feeling overwhelmed can be a gift because it takes you to him. That's why God often will allow you to be drawn out of your comfort zone into the pain zone because often that takes you to him where you otherwise wouldn't have gone there. That's why sometimes God allows discomfort in our lives. We need great leadership. We need management. We need great human wisdom. But they alone are not enough. How many of you know we need a fresh move of God? You didn't sound nearly as convinced as I in my head, thought you might. We need a new move of God. It's too late now. We need, I'm joking. We need a new move of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, listen, my, my father is pouring out new wine. And what you need for new wine is a new wineskin. Do you remember him teaching that? And the principle is, listen, God is doing a new thing. Let's make sure that our structures, our attitudes, our thought processes, our priorities, the wineskin, the way we do our youth work, the way we build church, the way we develop leaders, let's make sure the wineskin fits the new wine that God is pouring out from heaven. And I love making great wineskins. So what I spend most of my life doing is making sure that the structures and the processes and how we train people fits what God is doing. But how many of you know, so often we can spend so much time on the wineskin that we forget to drink the wine. And the wineskin is for the wine, not the other way around. The very best wineskin makers are those who regularly taste the wine that they're building for in the first place. I think it's John Piper who says, missions is about us recommending to other people what we ourselves cherish. (laughs) Are you recommending to other people a wine that you yourself are drinking and enjoying? Because if you're not, something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong. Because God is leading us in this season to a fresh dependence on what only he can do. I think very often in my, in my own life, I've tried to contain through managerial effort what can only be sustained through relational dependence. I, I try and sustain things to my own self-resources, my managerial effort rather than the resources that come through relationship with Jesus. And again, remember, I'm not polarizing. I'm not saying one is of God and the other isn't. What I'm saying is, even in our very best systems, we need God to show up. And if we don't need him to show up on our systems, the systems are wrong. <laughs> this came home to me a year or so ago where I was listening to a lady called Heidi Baker, who many of you will have heard of. She is a missionary. She's an apostolic lady to Mozambique. She's planted 8,000 churches in the last 10 years. It's not bad, is it? She's currently planting one new church every week. 
in one of the poorest nations of this planet. So when someone like that talks to you, you kind of listen, don't you? You kind of think, oh, I've got so much to learn. I'm sitting, listening to Heidi talk, and she just said, listen, there are some things that you only get from Jesus by waiting and by longing and by praying and by thirsting. And she said, the trouble in the West is we live life by this. We don't live life by this. And she said, some things we just need to wait for. We need to go into the courts of the king and get fresh oil. Something that only comes from being with him. She shared a story of being in a conference where she was listening to a man teach about how he prayed for people with blindness issues and many of them had received their sight again. And she said, at the time, living in Mozambique, we were praying for many blind people. There are many blind people in Mozambique. Often their, their eyes are completely white with disease. Often they're beggars. And she said, we weren't seeing any blind people healed. So I listened to this guy and I thought, whatever he has, I want. And so she said, at the end of the meeting, he offered to pray for anyone who wanted prayer. So I stood at the end of the queue. She said, I waited probably an hour for him to get to me. And she said, she, he got to me and he prayed for me. She said, I really felt nothing. But I fell on the floor more out of, God, I'm not leaving the floor until I get what you said I could have than anything. <laughs> she said, I didn't feel a tingle, I didn't feel anything. I just thought, in my heart, I'm not leaving until I get what he said he carries. And she said, I just lay there. I lost track of time. I realized that I'd probably been there a long time when I heard the sound of the hoover going around my head on the carpet. <laughs> and... The guys in the building ended up picking her body up and taking it out, throwing her in the back of a car. And they took her to a hotel. They took her to a hotel room. She was still just lying there. And she said, under my breath, I was just saying, Jesus, open the blind eyes. Open the blind eyes. Give me what you said I could have. And she said, I just wasn't going to leave until I got the promise. And she said, I lay there on my bed. And it was about 3 o'clock in the morning said, suddenly, the electricity of God's presence entered the room. And she said, I shook so violently that I fell off the bed and onto the floor. And she said, I'm just shaking there. And suddenly, I heard a knock at the door. Three o'clock in the morning. And she said, I crawled over to the door. And I reached up and I opened the door handle. And I looked down at two pairs of cowboy boots. And she said, I kind of looked up in a slightly groggy state. And there are these two cowboys with Stetsons on their heads. And these were two prophetic men from two different states in America that God had said to both of them, you need to go to this address where a lady called Heidi is praying. You need to go tonight and tell her that she has what she's asked for. And she said, from that moment, in the two villages that they were working in at the time in Mozambique, 100% of any blind people they prayed for were healed instantly from that moment. From that moment. She, she gave an example. She said, you know, the other day I, I had to repent because I was rushing through a village on my way to a discipleship meeting. And I saw this little beggar, this lady on the side of the road, she had about, had about four teeth in her mouth. She was completely blind. Her eyes were completely white. And she was just sitting there with a begging cup. 
And she's like, I felt that tug of compassion. But then I looked at my watch. And she said, I had to repent. She said, I put my, put my arm behind my back and said, Jesus, help me to love the person in front of me. And so she went over to this lady, sat down next to her, put her arm around her and just said, what's your name? And she says, I have no name. She says, what do you mean you don't have a name? She says, well, no one's ever given me a name. And she asked the other mamas in the village, she said, what's this lady's name? She said, she doesn't have a name, she's just a beggar. She begs, that's what she does. And so Heidi says to her, could I give you a name? And she's like, yes, please. So she gives her her first ever name. I she forget what it is, but she gives her a name. And then she just hugs her and tells her about Jesus. She says, Jesus knows your name. You're not forgotten. And she leads her to Christ while she's hugging her. And she, as I hugged her, her white eyes turned brown. And the kingdom showed up. Some things you only get by waiting, by longing, by being, by receiving. One of the season shifts for us is to realize that our nation will not change through effort alone. And God is not anti-effort. He is not anti-productivity. He is not anti-action. He is for those things. But there are some things that cannot happen unless he shows up. So are you getting oil from the secret place? (laughs) I find that story in Acts 19 about the seven sons of Sceva fascinating. They've heard about the success Jesus' disciples have in driving out demons in the name of Jesus. And so they find this demonized guy, this oppressed guy, and these seven priests who aren't followers of Jesus try and cast the demon out in the name of Jesus. And it says the guy beat them up and they left the house naked and bleeding. (laughs) In other words, it wasn't a very successful ministry trip. (laughs) And what the demonized man says on that occasion to the seven sons of Sceva is this. I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is. Who the heck are you? Because even the demons know the difference between people who are trying to manage by managerial effort than those who walk in relational dependence. You can use the right name, even have the right methodology, but get the wrong results. Because your unseen priorities will dictate what happens in the unseen realm. The world prioritizes what is seen. In Jesus' kingdom, he prioritizes what is unseen. You've got to get oil from the oil giver. And then lastly, God is moving us from a focus solely on church to a focus on the kingdom in every area of society. It's moving us from just a focus on the church to a focus on the kingdom. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I love the church. You know, I'm employed by a church. Most of my job is working with churches, strengthening churches, trying to make the church beautiful, trying to make the church strong. 
But I had an epiphany a few years ago where I realized I'd spent so much time focusing on what happens in the church meeting that I'd forgotten what was supposed to happen in the church's mission, which is to bring the kingdom. Do you know Jesus didn't once tell you to pray for the church? I'm not saying you shouldn't. He just never told you to do that. What did he say? Pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this was Jesus' message. It was John the Baptist's message as well. Mark 1.14, Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent, which means change the way you think and believe the good news. The new transition shift in this season is not just to focus on what happens in the church meeting, but to understand that God cares about the whole planet. God is not just interested in your Bible study. He is interested in arts. He's interested in the economy. He's interested in creativity. He's interested in business and politics and government and engineering and agriculture and gardening and the internet. God is interested in the whole thing because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Jesus said, listen, the kingdom, my kingdom has come in me. Therefore, change the way you think because it's about to break out. The earth is mine and everything in it. He is interested in the whole Shooting match. Jesus came to the planet, not just as a beam me up Scotty mission, but as I'm going to redeem this whole darn planet mission. You know, if you've got Star Trek in your head when you think about salvation, you've got the wrong gospel. Star Trek is, I can't wait for Jesus to beam me up out of this nasty old world. I've got news for you. At the end of the world, heaven is going to come down to earth, not the other way around. <laughs> The mission of Jesus was to bring heaven and earth back together under one head, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. It's the gospel that Jesus told us to preach. Bear in mind, not just the gospel of conversion, which is to save the souls of men and women, vital as that is. It's the gospel of the kingdom, which is good news for your soul, for your body, for your mind, for society, for culture, for decision-making, the whole shooting match. The gospel of the kingdom is good news for the whole planet. And one of the things that God is doing in this age is helping us to celebrate what happens outside of a church meeting. In your church services, you should be celebrating more what happens outside than inside. Because the holiest moment of church is not when you gather for an hour and a half on a Sunday. The holiest moment is when you leave that building and you go and be the church. You be salt and light where Jesus has placed you. That's the holiest moment. I believe that's the moment that God is rubbing his hands together and anticipate, I can't wait for him to leave this building. I can't wait for him to get out that door and go and have their Sunday lunch and talk about Jesus around the dinner tables and think about how they're going to impact the world on Monday morning. I cannot wait. That's the holiest moment of all. You know, I love that inflated sense of importance that footballers have. You know, they, they, they score like a tap-in and they run around the field like they are the best thing since sliced bread. You know, they've got that, whoa, yeah, look at me. You know, they've got a real heightened sense of their own importance. <laughs> they are celebrating what they're doing as if it's the most important thing on planet Earth. But I tell you what, perhaps they should celebrate that way. But perhaps you should as well. You know, if, if you're a gardener and you do a great landscaping job on someone's garden... 
Maybe you should be like Cristiano Ronaldo and run around that garden and think, yes, look at this garden. I laid it to the glory of God. I did something that brings honor to him. I served as if it was for the Lord, and therefore it counts. You know, if you're an engineer, or if you're an architect, or if you're an accountant, or if you're a musician, or a stay-at-home mom, or a teacher, wherever it is, God cares about this stuff. And we should be training young, young people and saying, God cares about this stuff. Therefore, become an accountant. Don't know why I keep picking accountants, but there's one back there. God bless you, my friend. <laughs> you know, and instead of saying to our young people, now, when you go to university, there's going to be a lot of illicit sex on offer, so you've got to be careful. You know, there's going to be a lot of drunkenness. Not messing around, be careful, make sure you stay holy, you know, watch yourself. How about we change that dialogue into a, this university better watch out. I tell you, the kingdom is about to show up. You know, because I know these guys that I've been training and the kingdom shows up in their life. This university better watch, go and have a brilliant time. Go and bring the kingdom to the glory of God. Go and live out who you really are. You know, how about we change the dialogue in our heads from one of uncertainty and being on the back foot to one of certainty and being on the front foot. You are made by the king to bring the kingdom where God has placed you. I was chatting to a friend of mine about a year ago. We were having a beer in a garden in Bedford. And I've known this guy since he was 18. And I just said to him, you know, what are you doing tomorrow? He's like, actually, I'm, I'm going to a forum called Britain and the Future of the World. Now, this guy's in his kind of late 20s. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. Said, Who else is going to this meeting? He's like, well, there's only about 20 of us. It's half of the cabinet and then a few other kind of invited guests. I'm one of them. I'm like, you are kidding me. This guy is sitting in a room debating Britain and the future of the world. A few weeks before, again, I asked him, what are you doing? He was overseas. And he said, oh yeah, I was in a meeting with the creator of Angry Birds, the sheikh of an Arab country, the former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, various other kind of entrepreneurs, and we were having a discussion about how to shape British culture. And they asked if anyone would like to chair the meeting. No one else volunteered, so I did. <laughs> and this is a guy, since 18, he knew the call of God to bring the kingdom in the realm of politics. And he's now doing it. Because he was born to do that, to extend the kingdom, not just to build the church. Made friends recently with a, a Christian artist who's got an art gallery in Los Angeles. And he uh, actually was born and bred in Bedford, now lives in LA. And the people that buy his paintings are people like George Lucas and Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, he was just on a tour to Miami and to London and to New York to sell his paintings. I mean, he's a breathtaking artist. So the last thing in the world that you want to do is get that guy to paint a painting on a Sunday morning in your meeting. That's not what he was born to do. He was born to bring the kingdom where God has called him. And so I want to celebrate that just as much as what happens on a Sunday morning because that's where the real work of the kingdom happens. He was telling me he drew a portrait of a sex worker in the Bronx. And she'd been in that trade for many, many years and he did a portrait of her face, which is just a breathtaking painting, and then gave it to her. And as a result, just seeing herself in this painting, 
she left the sex industry altogether. From that moment, suddenly the kingdom, his natural gift in the kingdom showed up in that same space because he was doing what God had made him to do. We want to raise up those kind of young people who do what God has called them to do. And yes, some will be called to lead churches. Some will be called to be apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. But by and large, the vast majority will be called to bring the kingdom where Jesus cares about the world. A couple more things and then we'll finish. George MacLeod says this, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I am recovering the claim that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a crossroads between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, on a crossroads so cosmopolitan they had to write his title in Hebrew and Latin and Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died, and that is what he died about, and that is where Christians should be and what Christians should be about. It's the kingdom, not just the church. All of the church is in the kingdom, but not all of the kingdom is in the church. And you're called to extend the kingdom wherever you go. Thank you, Father. Our best days are yet to come. I'm telling you, you are the hope of this nation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Be very optimistic. Be very confident, humbly confident in God that what he says he will do, he will do. Be bold, be courageous, take risks, live obedient to Jesus. At that moment where you feel your, your, your zeal for him slackening off, quickly seek the face of the Lord. Get oil from the secret place. Learn to be someone who leans in in relational dependence on him. I tell you, we will see another reformation in this nation. The greatest days of Great Britain are yet to come. And many of those works, many of those deeds, many of those nation-changing things will come from young people in your youth groups. By the grace of God.